Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us, Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Allison. Uh, Happy New Year to everybody. If you look behind me, you might have noticed that the table here has now a green uh, sheet over it. I don't know what that's called. I'm sure there's a technical term for that. Uh, And that marks the beginning of Epiphany. So uh, today, actually, I think even in East Harlem, there's going to be three kings parades to celebrate the season of Epiphany. Christmas, historically in the uh, Christian church, is a 12-day feast, so day one of Christmas is Christmas Day, and then the 12 days of Christmas follow December 25th, so the 12th day of Christmas is January 5th, January 6th is the Feast of Epiphany, where we remember how all the nations came to Jesus and heard the gospel of Jesus Christ as good news for the entire world, and today would be Epiphany Sunday, where we celebrate the revelation of this Jesus as good news for the whole world. Green represents the birth and the springing up of hope for the entire world. So just a little bit of background. Last time I was up here speaking, I told you a little bit about how the Christian calendar has become so meaningful for me because it reshapes my experience of time. Uh, It shapes my days according to the story of Jesus. And so it's helpful to think about how it is that the story of Jesus might reframe what otherwise is kind of very secular, unformed, blank space time, Uh, but the Christian calendar gives a storied time, narrative time. And so that actually brings us right to the series that we're starting. We're spending most of this year, as you know, if you've been with us, in the book of Psalms. And as we start off this new year, we're starting a new series that we're calling The Grand Narrative, The Story of the Bible and the Psalms. And so what we're doing is for the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at the major six portions of the great story of the Bible. So today we're looking at God. And then we'll be looking at creation, fall, redemption, mission, and restoration. And each time we'll be looking at a psalm 
to kind of take us through that story. Part of the reason, again, why we're doing this is to show you that in the book of Psalms, you can find the entire Christian life written to us in poetry and in song. And so that's what we're kind of exploring. So today we're starting with Psalm 90, and the topic for today is broad. We're talking about God. So Psalm 90, we're talking about God. Uh, and actually, Psalm 90 is interesting. It's the only psalm written by Moses himself. So it's kind of a unique psalm. So let's look at that. I want to use uh, three headings to take us through this psalm. We're going to look at the godness of God, the goodness of God, and the gladness of God. Okay, the godness of God, the goodness of God, and the gladness of God. So first, let's look at the godness of God, and what do I mean by that? Let me read for you verses uh, 1 through 6 again, so if you wouldn't mind throwing that back up on the screens here, just to remind us where we are. Uh, here's what the psalm says. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. You sweep, yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. So the godness of God, what do I mean by that? Uh, when you start to study the Bible, what you realize is that the Bible presents to us a God who is radically and wholly transcendent and other. What I mean by that is this. It is an understandable mistake for us. If you're just starting to maybe just start, start to think about God or you're asking some of these bigger questions, it is an understandable mistake to say, well, the best way to understand God is to take everything about that human beings that are good and project it large into the sky. And it's easy to think that that path will actually get us to an accurate understanding of God. But actually, the biblical God would say radically no. That if you take that path starting with us and you project us radically large into the sky, you won't get to the biblical God. You'll get to a reduced God. You'll get to a God that you can make images after. You won't get to a God who is holy and transcendently other. That God exists on a radically different plane of being than anything in all of his creation. So in that sense, God is wrapped in what the Bible calls inaccessible light, that there's a radical gulf, an infinite gulf that exists between us as creatures and God as creator. So I love the way that the psalm puts it. It says, before the mountains were born, you made the earth. Before the mountains were born, you were. You existed from everlasting to everlasting. You were God. Now, I did a quick Google search on this, and it turns out that the oldest mountains on earth are the Makhonjwa Mountains in the eastern part of South Africa. Uh, the Makhonjwa Mountains in South Africa, they date, they are 3.6 billion years old. 3.6 billion years old. And they were probably formed, they were probably once uh, the, the, the ground that uh, created the seabed. And over time, as plates kind of crashed into each other, they raised up. But 3.6 billion years old, the earth itself is probably 4.5 billion years old. And if you look, if you do a quick like Wikipedia search on this, earth is probably 4.5 billion years old. And then it says, you know, but there's a margin of error there. Like a sign, if you've ever done statistics, there's a margin of error there. It's 4.5 billion years old with, you know, plus or minus 50 million years. 
So when you think about the span of the earth, 50 million years is a rounding error. This is the span. This is the scope. And the Bible says before the mountains were formed, you are God from everlasting to everlasting. It is utterly mind-blowing. All of human civilization, so if you talk about, you know, human races existed for longer than this, but all of human, human civilization, so if you go back to, let's call it Mesopotamia, Fertile Crescent, all that maybe that you remember learning about at some point, all of human civilization, most people would say, is about 6,000 years compared to 4.5 billion. It doesn't, are all the glories and horrors of the human race don't even amount to a rounding error in the span of the scope of just this earth. It's a vision of God that staggers the human mind. It's a vision of God that is impossible to even begin to fathom. Or here's another way. Me and my son, we did a lot of math yesterday trying to help you get a sense for what this means. If you were to compress the age of the earth down to one year, do you know how long your life is? It's just under half a second. Your entire life, 80 years. Your life is but a breath. And that's a generous estimation. When you think about the span of this universe, or even this thing really quickly about space. I kind of geeked out a little bit on, on this the other day. Think about not just the over time, but God over space. If you were to cram or reduce the observable universe, it's not even the whole universe because there's lots of the universe that we have not yet been able to observe. So if you just uh, reduce the observable universe down to the size of Earth, okay, we're cramming all the universe and we're scaling it down to the size of Earth. Do you know how big Earth would be inside that universe? It'd be 500 times smaller than a single hydrogen atom. Do you know what's a hydrogen atom? It's a proton and an electron. 500 times smaller. And the Bible says, before the mountains were formed, before you made this earth, you are God. That entire universe fits on the top of God's fingertip. It staggers the mind. There's an unfathomable vastness to who God is. You can't get to him from here. There is no straight line between us. There is this infinite gulf that yawns open before us when we begin to try to understand who this God is. But here's what's even more mind-boggling to me. In the face of this kind of vast, dark, indifferent universe, there is a vast God who for some reason decided to make a small blue marble that is miraculously perfectly fine-tuned to sustain and nourish your life and mine. It takes your breath away when you consider the miracle of what that is. In the vastness of this universe, this one small glowing blue speck with all conditions, perfect conditions for life. 
And so the Bible presents a God who's not just from everlasting to everlasting, but a God who is from everlasting to everlasting, and yet who creates. And this God creates not because of a sense of a need or a sense of loneliness. If you can imagine, if God were not three persons in one, if God were just a single monad, you would imagine eternity is a heck of a long time to sit alone in cold darkness. And you can imagine that kind of God, just a single monadic God, you would imagine that God probably at some point is like, you know what, I'm feeling kind of alone. I'm just going to make something just so I can toy around with something. But that's not the God of the Bible. God creates not out of a sense of need or loneliness or that. God of the Bible doesn't create out of a sense to flex the muscles, to demonstrate his power. If you look at all the other ancient uh, 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 cosmology myths, all the creation myths, Almost every other ancient creation story has something to do with cosmic battles between gods. And a result of that, one, per, one god's body gets cut up and that becomes the earth and the sky. You see, if you have a single monad god, he creates out of loneliness. And love is foreign to this god until he creates. He needs creation. If you have one God out of many, creation oftentimes is a result of conflict, of battle, of violence, of power. But the God of the Bible is neither of those things. The Bible tells us there is a God who for eternity paths with Father, Son, and Spirit. That this God had perfect delight, perfect relationship, perfect self-giving love. That the Bible describes this triune life as a dance between Father, Son, and Spirit where they were passing to one another delight and joy and love. That we have this perfect, satisfied, content, delighted God who could have spent all of eternity delighting within himself. And yet for no other reason than it pleased him. He creates this small, glowing, blue dot. And for some reason, he creates a creature that he says, you are now after my image. It is absolutely breathtaking. The God of the Bible creates out of perfect contentment and satisfaction. It's an overflow of delight. And there's no other God like this. This is why I love, you know, C.S. Lewis and the whole Chronicles of Narnia series. I love that a magician's nephew, when he goes back and he describes the whole creation narrative, it's a little bit of an imaginative retelling, so obviously this is not exactly in the Bible, but I love that he has Aslan, the Christ figure, create the universe by singing it into being. He sings, and all the world comes into being. This is a God vast beyond measure, and yet creates you and me. Every feature, every wrinkle, every part of you creates us with such care, such delight, such joy as an overflow of who he is. Now, if you remember that it's probably Moses who's writing this psalm, I can't, ima I can't help but imagine that he has in the back of his mind as he writes this psalm the most important spiritual encounter Moses ever had in his entire life where he meets God at a burning bush and Moses dares, musters up the boldness to say, God, tell me your name. I can't go to these people without knowing your name. And if you remember what God tells him, he says, Moses, my name is I am. 
I am who I am. A name that perfectly captures the mystery, the vastness, the otherness of this God. I am who I am. I am the great I am. Tell him that I am has sent you to set them free. It's the godness of God. There is nothing else, no other like him. And so for me, it's no wonder that the psalmist, after verses 1 and 2, it's no, no wonder that Moses' imagination now turns to how short our lives are. If you could just throw up verse three, three, four, 3 through 6 there. I won't necessarily read them, but just to have them in front of you. He now turns, and he talks about starting in verse 3, you turn mortals back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals, verse 4 there. And he says, thousand years in your sight, you sweep people away like, like, we're like new grass in the uh, morning. It springs up new, but by evening it is dried and withered. He looks at a God who's existed before all the mountains, who's existed in perfect joy. And we say, he exists, far, he's far more firm than mountains, but you and I were like grass. We wither at the slightest heat. Our lives amount to half a second, this momentary collocation of atoms and energy that we call a self. It's no wonder that Moses thinks about how vast God is and immediately he, re he returns to how fragile, how nothing we are. And the ancients understood this deeply. They think it's something that we've forgotten in our own kind of modern self-importance. That actually if we're going to get to God... There's no way using mere human rationality in the smallness of who we are. There's no straight line from here to there. That there is, in fact, a concrete slab between what Kant called the noumenal and the phenomenal. We cannot break through. It's the godness of God. Holy other. Breathtaking, staggering in his vastness. But let's look secondly at the goodness of God. And here we're turning our attention to verses 7 through 12. So let me read those to you again real quick. <clears throat> it says, We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Verse 10. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. And lastly, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, remember the point is the goodness of God. Did you hear a lot of goodness of God in the verses that I just read you? There's a lot of wrath and anger and judgment and moaning and, you know, all that. And you're like, well, where, where do we see the goodness of God? And I think that's a fair point. Like, is that really about the goodness of God? Okay, fair. I'll give you that. But the reason why I see the goodness of God in those verses, I have two reasons. The first one is this. If there is no personal God, there is no meaningful way to talk about goodness and evil. There's no meaningful way to talk about what's right and what's wrong. So again, if we take God out of the picture, if there is no God and the universe is all there is, then the universe exists by randomness. And the only thing we can discern in the universe that even comes close to a logic embedded in the universe is the logic of survival of the fittest. All of our sense of morals 
are completely arbitrary. So if there is no God, survival of the fittest is the only logic we can discern as a principle of the universe. What that means is that, of course, the powerful should use their power to exploit the weak. Of course they should. Why, why else would they have power? You see, of course the strong should do everything it can to overcome and dominate the weak. Of course, violence is not only the norm of this universe. Violence becomes the necessary good. You must do violence to the weaker in order for evolution to continue on. That's the only logic that you can find in that. But even as I say that, you don't have to be a Christian believer to hear that and say, but that can't be right. So when I was growing up, uh, I had, we had two pets our entire lives. There's two little hamsters. Uh, their names, we were little, so their names are not very imaginative, were Frankie and Fluffy. Those were two, two hamsters. And we got them. They were both boys, and <clears throat> we had them both in a cage. We bought one cage, and we bought with, like, a couple of layers. So we were like, oh, man, you got kind of like the penthouse cage. Like, we're doing you good, right? So two, three layers of the cage and then um, a hamster ball. What the person who sold us these hamsters didn't tell us is that if you have two male hamsters sharing space, they will fight to the death. <laughs> and so we put them in the cage, and so Fluffy turned out to be the stronger one, and Frankie was a smaller one. Fluffy's chasing Frankie around the entire cage. We put them both in one hamster ball because we were cheap. We were like, ah, they can just go. They can share. It's good for them to share. So we put them both in a hamster ball, the two of them, by the time they were done rolling around, that whole hamster ball was covered with hamster blood. I mean, it was like so traumatic. It's so traumatic. I'm 46 years old, and I'm still talking to you about it. Like, that's how long, like, the whole thing was covered in blood. I'm like, oh, my gosh. But what was worse, it wasn't just in the hamster ball. But back in the cage, it got to a point where Fluffy, who's a stronger one, forced Frankie to only stay in this tiny little plastic house on the third floor of this entire cage. We couldn't get to the wheel, but would terrorize him. So anytime Frankie tried to come out, Fluffy would go after him. So Frankie was trapped in that. So we had to put food inside the house, otherwise Frankie couldn't eat. He was pooping and peeing and eating all in that same space. Like, it was like a terror. For me, again, it's so traumatic. And ultimately, Frankie, Frankie died quickly. Fluffy hung on for a while afterwards. It was like the most, we never got pets ever again. <laughs> but the reason that I say that is in that moment, there was something in my whatever, six-year-old heart, I don't know how old I was, that said the strong shouldn't just be able to do whatever they want to the weak. It's not okay. That trauma that stays with me 40-plus years later was a trauma that said there's something more than just the strong over the weak. There must be. There has to be. The goodness of God, God as the source of all moral good, as the only way to ground moral good, is a crucial part of what we understand or mean by God. Now, here's the thing. There are plenty of philosophers who've been trying to think about the good without having to appeal to a God, right? So you could almost say that this, the whole span of kind of Western philosophy, at least in the realm of ethics, have been philosophers trying to say, surely we can talk about a good without using God. 
I'm going to do a really quick cra crash course on Western philosophy here, okay? It's going to be very quick, I promise. But essentially, if you go all the way back to like Plato and Aristotle, early philosophers all said the only way there's a good is if there is a moral God. Over time, people started to say, well, we're more modern people now. We don't really believe in a God. It's all kind of superstition. So let's not ground our moral good in a moral God. What if there's a moral law? Just like we have physical laws, there are moral laws. So an entire generation of philosophers said, not a moral God, but a moral law. And then over time, philosophers came along and they said, well, moral law assumed that there's some sort of morality built into, just like there's gravity, there's goodness built in the universe, doesn't make any sense. And so Rousseau in particular goes from a moral God to a moral law to ultimately, no, it's just moral intuitions. We have this built-in sense of the moral, just like we have a sense of smell, we have a sense of hearing, we have a sense of sight, we have a sense of what's moral, there's a moral intuition. But even there, over time, people said, no, that intuition would require it resonating with something outside of itself, which is a moral law. A moral law doesn't make any sense without, any, without a moral God. And so they say, well, can't be a moral intuition. And now we're at a point where most of our philosophers are saying it's not a moral intuition, it's a moral feeling. And so the reason why my six-year-old self didn't like seeing Fluffy terrorize Frankie was because it created a feeling inside me that morals are only grounded in my feeling, the feeling of the self. Now, on the one hand, that sounds liberating, and it sounds like, oh, you know, that's very modern, so we have all these different uh, cultures, different perspectives on the moral, and so this would ground our morals and our feelings so we could be very pluralistic. But here's the problem. If morals are reduced to feelings, what happens when you meet someone who doesn't share your feelings? You can't argue about what's true and good and beautiful. You can't reason. If there's someone you meet that just doesn't feel the same moral feelings as you do, what happens? The only way you can create an ordered world is if you use coercion to force someone who doesn't share your feelings to do what you believe is right. And so all you have are social shame and political power. Does that sound familiar? Then when the only thing grounding our very strong impulses around what's right and wrong, what's just and unjust, when the only recourse we have is the feelings that I experience, then the only way to persuade is to coerce. And that's exactly, I think, what we're seeing happening in our discourse when I look at the godness of God, I think the psalm here also shows us the goodness of God, that there is a God who says this is sin, this is iniquity. There is a God who gets angry at sin and injustice, that there is a moral core to the universe, and his name is God. So that's the first reason why I see the goodness of God. But there's a second reason, and it's this. Not only do we have a God who kind of grounds our right and wrong, but what's, what shocks me about those verses, verses 7 through 12, is that we have a God who cares how we live and how we treat one another. So remember, your life is about half a second in the span of the existence of the earth. And yet God cares how you treat your neighbor. God cares how you show hospitality to the stranger. God cares deeply about how we treat one another. 
That to me is astounding. Why should God care when our lives are half a second, our lives are but a breath, and yet God cares profoundly? So real quick, one more story. I told myself I'd be 30 minutes today, but I'm also already pushing the envelope. One, one quick story, and then we'll move on to the third point. Over Thanksgiving, uh, we had family coming in town. You know, life kind of got away from us, and so we ended up just having to order food for Thanksgiving rather than cooking it in. So on Thanksgiving morning, uh, we took the whole family out just to get us out for a walk, and we went down and we walked to the grocery store to go pick up our, you know, basically half-made Thanksgiving dinner, basically. We'd come home and cook it and, and, and warm it up or whatever. On the way there, we walked by, we were walking on the sidewalk, and we walked by something that out of my periphery, I was like, ew, that's totally a dead mouse. And so I just kept on walking, just kind of grossed out. It's just one of these like, and then keep walking moments. But I walked by, and after I walked by, the kids st- came by, and they stopped. And I walked half a block, and I looked back, and I'm like, what are you guys doing? That's disgusting. I'm like, no, Dad, come back. It's a baby bat. And so I went back, and sure enough, it was a baby bat. <laughs> right? That doesn't make it any better. That's disgusting. But they're all surrounded, like, oh, it's like, it must be hurt. I don't know why. It's like stuck. It's lying down. And I'm like, guys, there's this thing called rabies. Bats have rabies. Don't touch the bat. But they're kind of huddled around like, guys, I don't know. And I'm like, what are we going to do? Are we going to take it home? We're going to adopt a pet bat here? We don't know what bats eat. We don't know where they live. We don't know anything about bats. Just leave it alone. Leave it alone. So I just kind of kept on walking. I ended up going ahead to the grocery store, getting all the stuff, and on my way out. And it turned out while I was gone, they had uh, covered the bat with their scarf. <laughs> found a box, put it in the box, and they were prepared to take it home. I'm like, that thing is not coming into my house. Like, I don't know. I don't know if you want to call animal services. I don't know what you're going to do with it, but that thing is not coming into my house. And so they ended up bringing it home. The whole time, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is like the grossest thing ever. But they're like, look, it's so cute. And I looked at its face, and it's got that pig nose, bat face. And I'm like, no. Like, ew, no. Now, in the end, we brought it all the way back home. And in the end, they knew, like, we're not going to bring bat into our house and I think my wife may have called animal service but they only do like squirrels and other things so there's no other recourse so all they had to do was they had to take the bat wrapped in a scarf in a box and they walked it out to a pier so that the bat could at least I guess watch the sunset (laughs) as it died by evening right that's how that story ends that's the whole story the reason I share that story is for me, I saw this bat that I knew would be dead by evening. And I looked at it and I just went, and I just wanted to walk by. But for my kids, they saw the bat, and there was something, even given the brevity of its life, even kind of how gross it was, there was something that drew out goodness. It drew out mercy. It drew out compassion. Now, when you think about the God of the universe, as he looks down on you and me, praise God that he's not like your pastor. (laughs) Praise God that he looks down on us. The brevity of our lives, we are going to be dead by evening as far as he's concerned. Our lives have created that moral grossness, and yet he stops. And he doesn't just leave us out on a pier to die 
you know, huddled in his scarf. But he does far more than that. And that leads to the third and final point. Because the godness of God is staggering. I think the goodness of God is even more breathtaking. But it's three, the gladness of God that I still have, I still find myself in wonder and awe over. Let me read verses 13 through 15 to you. So you can pull that up. 13 says, relent, O Lord. Some translations say, return, O Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy, in the, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Verse 15. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. Now commentators will all say that Moses, remember he's the one who wrote this psalm, he probably wrote this psalm right around the events of what's described in Numbers chapter 20. So you're like, well, what happened in Numbers chapter 20? So that chapter begins with Moses uh, losing his sister Miriam. So Miriam dies at the beginning of, of number 20. Now, if you know the story of Moses, Miriam was the sister that walked along the banks of the Nile as he was in the basket to make sure that he ends up in a safe place. That's Miriam. So she dies at the beginning of Numbers 20. At the end of Numbers 20, Aaron, his brother, also passes away. So Aaron was the priest that came alongside him. When Moses was supposed to hold up his arms, Aaron was one of the people that held up the arms. So it begins with Miriam's death. It ends with, with uh, Aaron's death. In between, sandwiched in between those two deaths, which, which would have been shattering for Moses, you could imagine. In between those two deaths, Moses strikes the, the rock, and God tells him, you will not be entering into the promised land. And so Moses is contemplating probably his own death in the desert. And that's the Moses that writes verses 13 and 14. Sorry, can you pull it up again real quick? Imagine Moses, and he says, Relent, O Lord, return, O Lord. How long will it be? Imagine Moses. Have compassion on your servants. And he says, this, Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. That we, may, that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. Moses looks at that moment in his life and he says, there must be a day coming. There must be a fresh morning on the other side of all of this sadness, on the other side of all of this darkness where satisfaction will reign, where we will sing and we will be glad. There has to be. There has to be a fresh morning. But Moses at that time could never have imagined how God would bring that morning about. He could never have imagined the extent that God would go to in order to show him his unfailing love because a thousand years later, there's a prophet greater than Moses and he would come and where Moses said, you and I were like the grass of the field, we wither by evening, this prophet greater than Moses, Jesus, would say, yes, that's true. But look at the lilies of the field. Look how God clothes them. Are you not much more valuable? Moses said from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There's an infinite gulf between us and the great I am, the one who said, I am who I am. Jesus, the one greater than Moses, came and said, yes, but do you know who I am? Before Abraham was, I am. 
Moses said, if there's a God of perfect delight and gladness, there must be a day coming where we will sing and be glad. Jesus, the one greater than Moses, came and said, yes, that day has come in me. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, left the place of perfect, eternal gladness, left the dance of perfect delight, of everlasting satisfaction. He left the dance of perfect cosmic joy so that he could stumble bloodied up a hill carrying a cross. Why would anybody do that? Why would Jesus ever do that? There's only one answer. That's how much he loves you. He left that place of perfect delight. And he said, come, let me take your sin. Come, let me take your sorrow. Come, let me bear the wrath. Come, let me bear your judgment. So I can trade you. I'll take your judgment. So I could trade you and give you my perfect delight. Let me give you my perfect satisfaction. Let me give you my perfect gladness. And we watched as the eternal one, Jesus Christ, the one who made the mountains, we watched him wither like grass as he hung on a cross, shriveled under the weight of God's judgment that you deserved. The Lord of life moaned as his life ended so that you might go free, so that you might know his gladness. Friends, let me wrap up here. You and I, we have 80 years on this glowing blue marble. That's it. That's all we get. What are you doing with it? What are you giving your life to? Can I exhort you, stop chasing things that will not satisfy when the morning comes. Stop giving your life to gods who will fail you. Forsake it all. Forsake it all. Because if you don't, they certainly will forsake you. Give your life to Jesus. Live for him. Receive his forgiveness. And when that morning comes, be satisfied with his unfailing love. Sing for joy. And we will be glad all of our days. Let's pray. I say the few moments now... One of the things we've done is we've moved some of our prayers around, but we want to give you an opportunity to offer up a prayer of confession in light of what you've just heard. Maybe you need to confess what it is that you've been giving your life to with 80 years to give. Maybe you need to confess that you forgot the goodness of God or you forgot the godness of God. Whatever it is, whatever stood out to you, whatever the Spirit brought to life for you in what you just heard, take a few moments and confess what you've been giving your life to. And use this time to turn back to him, the only God who will satisfy, the God whose love will not fail. So let me give you a minute or two to do that in silence, to confess.
Lord, we are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. But Lord, even now as we've confessed, we pray what Moses prayed. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on us, your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may, that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. Lord, as we begin to prepare and to approach your table, we bring our confessions for you and we ask you for a trade. Would you take our sin? Would you take our iniquities? Would you take our failures? Would you take our selfishness? And would you trade them for your forgiveness, your joy, your power, your strength, your newness, your embrace. And because Jesus died on the cross, we can be assured that you will always do that deal. It makes no sense. But you will always do that deal for anyone who turns away from sin, places their faith in Jesus, and throws ourselves at the mercy of him who died for us. So we thank you for that. So meet with us now, O oh Lord, as we approach your table to prepare to take the Lord's Supper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.